Hello again listeners and welcome to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations with me, your host, Freddie Cocker. As always, each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have an at about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we'll discuss it. On to my special guest now, and this is another fantastic member of the Huddersfield Town fan community who has, along with many others, supported Vent since I pretty much started it, I think. Um, we're both fellow extroverts and absolutely love a chat, so naturally we got on straight away. And we finally got the chance to talk properly on a Huddersfield Town podcast episode called Andy Takes That Chance very recently. Um, it felt like we'd known each other for years, to be honest, even though that was the first time we'd ever spoken face to face. So I'm delighted to welcome the big man and all legend andy k onto the just checking in pod <laughs> andy is uh it'll mind me say it don't it won't mind me saying legend uh andy is the managing director of akld training limited where he delivers professional coaching qualifications and training qualifications to clients across the country andy welcome to the just checking in pod mate how are you and how are you coping with the lockdown and general madness right now uh, thank you very much i'm not sure about the word legend but uh, you know i'll take it <laughs> those of us in the training trade we always like a bit of positive feedback so i'll have that i always um, like to have a great intro mate for you yeah yeah i appreciate <laughs> it um i think in terms of how we're coping you know we're, we're coping really well um mm. we've, we've developed like a, a a good routine i think i've been a bit sort of make sure we stick to the structure we'd, we'd do it me and him because i'm I've, I've dropped into being my son george's um teacher uh, mm. a massive respect to any teachers out there good lord do they earn their money um, <laughs> uh, so we do like joe wicks on a morning um which uh, reminds me a little bit of you and your accent to be honest mate sometimes i've, <laughs> I've channeled freddie cocker when he's been there going Oh, my. Um, mate, he is do... he is another level to me. I don't give me give me that much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he um, and then we'll do with him. We do maths and literacy in the morning, and then he's got alternative subjects that he does in an afternoon. And we try and go from sort of nine thirty after Joe Wicks has finished till about three. We've never managed to last till three. So I've I've actually oh. learned that flexibility is key, and also you've got to changing. give yourself a break, mate. Yeah, well, we have we have after every lesson there's a fifteen minute break, which he doesn't get at school, but then also just going out for a walk sometimes, or mm. just going, oh, sod it, let's not bother. Because nobody's marking mm. the stuff, you know, <laughs> yeah. so it doesn't really matter. But yeah, it's um, it's it's we, we've done re- we've done quite well. Um, Karen, my missus has been working at home for like the last, um, I think it's about three or four weeks, and has rearranged the entire house around around her work, which is which is fine. We've been booted mm. out of the kitchen and into the living room, and then she's moved up into our bedroom because it's much easier and she's out of the way so we've we've shifted the house around a bit but yeah we've we've done quite well we've also got my my stepdaughter if you want to call her stepdaughter we'll talk about about that that relationship a bit later on i think but um uh, charlotte's home from from uni so she's been doing a thing doing some stuff towards her degree which she she finishes mm. fairly shortly so yeah we've 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 done all right actually i've i've been surprised how well we've done really mm. Mm, it sounds it, mate. Um, we've got a lot to get through on this episode. Shall we just get started? Yeah, cool. Let's crack on, yeah. 
let's kick off the pod pal with your full-time role which is with AKLD Trainings. Now for the listeners who haven't heard of AKLD just what is it how did it all begin and, and why did you feel inspired to do it? Um, well, it's, 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 it sounds more glamorous than it is because <laughs> AKLD is Andy K Learning and Development. So it's, it's me, essentially. Um, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a self-employed freelance trainer delivering uh, leadership management and business skills stuff, ranging from coaching um, all the way through a lot, lot of emotional intelligence stuff, which I think is partly sp- sort of sparked my interest in the mental health um because mm. often you um the stuff that you, i th- i think i can do because of my awareness of emotional intelligence that can that, that can helps me manage myself better than maybe i did do in the past um so i i work for the company that i used to work for full time i'm now one of their associate trainers although if anybody else would like the services of an associate trainer to deliver that type of stuff i'd be more than willing to hear from people uh, i'm trying to expand me um my customer base so to speak i've got a couple of organizations that i'll be speaking to when the um when the lockdown's finished but yeah i deliver stuff for them all, all over the uh, all over the uk uh, get down to london a little bit mainly in the the north and midlands but yeah i'll, I'll go wherever there's a, a gig really obviously the training you deliver to your clients is mainly technical andy but has mental health ever been something which has become something you've experienced during during this work or had to deal with and if so how did that manifest itself you know without revealing too many details yeah, there's a, there's a couple of couple of parts to that. Um, I've delivered quite a bit of resilience training, so there's um, mm. some some half day workshops that um, that my organisation offer. So we take you through um, like a, a resilience assessment, and then do some activities on the back of that. So, and there's a lot of that's quite um, a key thing. Uh, organisations often want people to be more resilient, um, but actually, mm. if you think about it, if you work in an organisation where where people are kind to you. You don't have to be resilient in the first place. You can just mm, do what mm. the best thing is. So often it's it's something that's brought in for, to help people in a situation where actually if they looked at how they were behaving with each other, you wouldn't have the need for the resilience training in the first place. So sometimes it's it's counterproductive. I think from a from a, a mental health um, perspective for me, uh, the key thing mm. is that it, my work will take me away from the family quite a lot. So I'll be down mm. in, in London or, or wherever working away and that can be quite a strain sometimes. Um, so that's, mm. there'll be times when I've, um, I've, I've, I've found it, I've got a good routine when I'm away. I'll, I'll get into the, the, the place early. I'll do my work. I'll come home. I'll go for a run or go for a walk or, or sometimes if I take me back, I'll go for a bike ride wherever I am, come back, have me tea, contact the family, do some work. And that routine, staying in that routine is the, is the thing that really helps. But sometimes it can be, it can be really difficult if you, if you like, you're, you're five days out of five on the road. Um, I've got mm. a little trick that I, I use, um, like mental mental trick, what you call it, but I, I do a piece of visualization because sometimes you can be a mm. bit, a bit, oh God, have I got to talk about this again or have I got to facilitate this about again? And what I'll do is I'll, I'll mentally bring George, my son, into the room and I'll sit him at the back of the room on the left hand side and I'll say, okay, George is here with you now. Uh, George is watching you. What would you want George to, to see? Would you want him to see, you know, grumpy daddy who's fed up of, <laughs> of this type of work? Or would you want to see daddy, daddy that's trying his best and enjoying himself? And that always gives me the the perspective that I need to be able to do my best. Because essentially, as I'm self-employed, I, um, I'm i only as good as my last gig. Because I could get mm. booted out by any employer if I get it wrong or upset somebody 
then that can often put a bit of pressure on you. you know you um so i've got to have these strategies that that help keep me balanced because uh, mm. one of my big strengths is my energy and my enthusiasm and passion and, and that type of stuff but that can be you know overdone strength is a weakness if i overdo that that can affect people um in in the wrong sort of way so i've got to get that balance and i find having routines and, and being able to visualize my little fella in the room with me helps mm. that's a really great I mean, a really lovely thing you said about those strategies there, Andy. And I really loved what you said about, um, you know, if it's if if it's a if you're in a kind workplace, you know, you almost you almost don't even really have to yeah. to exhibit that sort of high level of resilience because it looks after itself, basically. Uh, in it your experience, yeah. um, you know, what have these sort of training courses taught you about mental health, and and how have you used that information in your in your working life and also your personal life as well? And and do you think these experiences taught you anything about yourself, maybe? Mm, yeah, so it, they've taught me that uh, there's a phrase that a, a guy called Ken Blanchard uses called different strokes or different folks. So different mm. people need different things. Uh, but often in a training room, I will be in, in a good state of minds. But often we get lots of different type of people that walk through the door. Um, and they can be, I, I cut the, you get prisoners, protesters, passengers and participants. Prisoners don't want to be there. And we'll tell you quite loudly they don't want to be there. Passengers will just sit and endure it and hope they learn by being in the same room as somebody talking about something. Um, uh, what I say? Passengers, protesters. Um, protesters are the ones who complain about the fact that they're there and also about the, fact the content of the material. But you've got to look mm. beyond that. And that's the thing that it's taught me, really, is that people are doing what they're doing for a reason. They're not trying to make the situation worse. I've never had a delegate on a workshop who's, who's come in and gone, right, I'm going to make the situation worse for myself by doing whatever it is that I'm doing. So some people complain loudly. Some people draw attention to themselves. Some people would draw into themselves. And I've got to go, right, okay, what what's the best thing I can do for this person at this point in time to help them to contribute and, and bring themselves into the room? So it's recognizing what my role is um and and people will do they'll they'll display things in in different ways so it's it's taught me to different strokes for different folks and different things work for different people it's taught me to be a bit more i guess patient and tolerant because in my early days you know if you rocked up and you were grumpy in my workshop i'd probably dismiss you um i've got much better at that i think over the years and applying the knowledge that sometimes people need different things i've got to recognize that i'm a person too and that applies to me so sometimes i'll I'll need Mm -hmm. to do something different like bringing george into the room or uh breaking state i'm pretty good at recognizing what's going on in a room and and whether people we need to do a break or we need to change the activity or or we need to let the the river of the the course flow down here so um it's, it's taught me that there's different things to do um and different things will help different people there's not one one size fits all solution to to, to mental health and you know, keeping you in a good state and, and helping you when you're in not such a good state We've got the very professional stuff out of the way, Andy. Now I want to get into the fun parts of the pod and a topic we both adore and, and regularly chat about on Twitter, which is the sport of cricket. Now, firstly, how did you get into it? What made you fall in love with the game? Who perhaps took you to your local cricket club as a youngster or your first cricket match and really created that spark in you? Um, there was there was a guy at my junior school whose dad was a coach at, at Murfield Cricket Club where I, I played most of my career. Um and he just said, look, we're setting up a, 
I think it was an under-13s team, would you be interested, you know, come down type of thing? So I went down and just, just fell in love with it from um, from day one, really. I can remember him giving us homework on a Friday night and then telling us we had to go home and learn the fielding positions. And come back and <laughs> I still don't know them now. <laughs> silly, yeah, so where Silly Midon is. Silly Midon is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not quite sure, but um, I, I don't know. I think it was because it was, it was different. Um my mum mm. and dad weren't particularly sporty. Obviously, when I was at that age, 12 or 13, it was something I could do on my own. I could go and, and be part of a, a team. I've always loved being part of teams. Um, I can remember a couple of incidents that, that sort of stuck with me. There was, a, there was a game that we played, and it was Murfield under-13s, probably against Staincliffe, which is um, uh, in Dewsbury. And I can remember pulling off an abs, and I'm going to say this myself, but it was an absolute <laughs> blinder of a catch. I went one way, I went to my right, and then dived back to my left and caught it one-handed. And everybody went mental, and I thought, I like this game. You can do stuff like that, and people shout at you and think you're brilliant. And then it was the, the probably before you were born, I would imagine, but 1981, <laughs> the Bortham's Ashes. I was away on, I went to the first day of that test match, and it was uh, the most dull day ever. Uh, and I think a guy called John Dyson got 100 for Australia. And then we went away on holiday, went away with my mum and dad. We went to the south of France on a coach trip with my mate Mark's family and him. And I can remember going to the, um, go and get the papers. And it was probably two days after the, the test match had finished. I came back and I can remember th- running through the campsite going, they've won, they've won, they've won. <laughs> and, and I just thought, I want to play this game where you can you can go from, I mean, England were absolutely up the creek without a paddle mm. At, at, mm. when we went to France. And then when we came back and they won it and, and, and both them and Willie and Dilly had, had done their thing. My word, I thought, I want to I wanna play that game. And then I've... I th- I was never any good, really. I was I was half decent at second team level in the in the standard that I played, but um, it just gave me lots of friends, or friends for life, um, memories for life. Um, so yeah, it's always been that way. And I've, I've now I've I, I haven't played for I didn't play last season at all. I played one game the season before because I've got family and working away and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Um, I've, but I got to the point where I couldn't do what I used to be able to do. And that was the right. It's time to to give it up. I now run the the All Stars, which is like the the ECB's under eights cricket initiative at my 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 club down the road, Silverstone Cricket Club. And I really enjoy doing that. It's it's great that it's only eight weeks because by the time you get to week eight and you've got five year olds trying to you're trying to get them to do what they should be doing on the activity and they never, they never do it. But it's <laughs> um, it's a lot of fun. I feel like I can I can give a little bit a little bit back. Yeah, but mm. I always loved it from almost the the day I'm one of these people that I'm a cricketer that loves football and I could sit and watch any standard of cricket and get pleasure mm. from it but ask me to watch football I'm not even that bothered about England I can only watch really games that town are in I'm mm. not interested in Super Sunday because it just doesn't give me any pleasure I've got to be emotionally mm. involved in it to be to get any joy from it so, yeah. mm. throughout these moments and stories Andy and, and that great one you just said about the, uh, the, the the catch you gave that's a that's a really amazing one how do you think sort of cricket helped shape you as a person into the the man you are today because you know you play you didn't you didn't just play at youth level but you played all the way into your in your adult life as well mm. yeah 
I think it, for, for for a long time it, it was me, uh, particularly in the summer. Uh, I'd go off and, and practice twice a week and play on a Saturday, play on a Sunday. Um, and I think it was that feeling of being part of a of a team, the camaraderie. Because mm, mm. one of the beauties of it is you get if you if you get you get to spend half the game. Usually, if you're not batting, sat on your backside talking to your mates. <laughs> that was, that's what I like the most. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably the best bit of it, really. So it, it was. I think it was the camaraderie. It was the the challenge to play a a, a really good standard and to contribute. Um, I think that that was because sporting wise, I don't have many sporting genes, but I can give you hundred percent effort, and I can. I've never ever gone onto a cricket field and and, and never given less than hundred percent, and I think that's always been my my standards. So I think that's 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 how it shaped me really. Mm. Dressroom culture is also something I want yeah. to discuss with you, Andy. Um, when it comes to cricket, did you ever find it in your experience to be a sport that perhaps harboured toxic masculinity or stopped men from opening up about their mental health issues, something which footballers sadly massively struggled with? And, and did you ever have those types of conversations with people in your team? I know it was a long time ago and the mental health mm. conversations obviously was obviously very different back then, but was, yeah. it, was that ever something that you did? No, never. Never, and I don't mm. know how it would have been mm. viewed had somebody come out and said, "You know, I'm I'm not feeling myself mentally today." I think they probably would have had the the Mickey taken back taken out of them back in those days, mm. um, because it just wasn't something that was ever talked about. Um, mm. It was that I played, although I didn't get paid, I played semi professionally, and there was there was a lot of money knocking around um, mm. for a little bit of the time. With the club, the club that Murfield paid out a bit. Um, the other two clubs that I've really played for, Cawthorn, Round Here and Silkston, there wasn't ever much money paid out there. But there was, you know, some some lads were under pressure. They were trying to earn a bit of extra brass. Mm. Uh, so there was that um, pressure there. But it, I think if there would have, anybody in, I think back in the, the 90s, 80s, 90s, um, when I was playing at a, a decent standard, I, th- I think if anybody had come out and said anything in the dressing room about, um, I'm not. I'm not mentally well today. That I just got mm. laughed at because the people wouldn't have known what to do. It just wasn't mm. a discussion that was that was on the agenda. Um, mm. So I think it was. Yeah, there was. I'm sure there's been. Um, there's probably been certainly a lot of sexism in the rooms that, that, that mm. the dressing rooms that I've been in. Probably racism that, that I didn't call out. Um, and, and it's one of those that you think you look back and think mm, some of the things that were said and done back in the day would just not be tolerated now at all. Mm. So I, I mm. don't think that the mental health was, people's mental health was never part of the, the agenda. Mm. You'd have just been told to, to sort yourself out and crack mm. on. I think the best example of that is is when Marcus Trescothic came out about his mental health in in the in the late you know I think it was the early two thousands if I remember correctly yeah. and he came out about his depression and said he was retiring from international cricket and he said he couldn't handle you know the touring uh, environment anymore and there was a lot of sort of incredulity about it, it wasn't there there was a lot of you know yeah. how can how can he What's possibly game, retire yeah. he, he was he yeah. was at the top of his game he was pretty much one of England's best batsmen at the time he had a really good relate um, opening batting relationship and I think people were sort of. I, I think there was a lot of puzzlement, and I think I think there was obviously a lot of stigma as, as well. And, and looking back, he was he was a real trailblazer for for the yeah. sport in general's understanding of mental health. Do you think the conversations changed in the time that you've been playing adult cricket, and and have yeah. has the conversation got better? Do you think? Yeah, it, it's still not at the, the, the level that I'm operated at now. Mm. I think 
um, if people were to open up about how they felt and what was going on for them, I think people would now listen. Whereas back in the day, mm. they just wouldn't have done. They'd have, they'd have gone to the mm. bar and ordered another drink and, and just felt awkward about it. They wouldn't have known what to do. Um, yeah, mm. I think Triscothic was a was a trailblazer. The, the, I think I can't remember the name of the, the film. Was it? The, it's not the Test. That's the one that's on at the minute about the Australian cricket team. But there's there's a film about the when Jonathan Trot was in Australia and the the his oh, mental yes, health remember, there yeah. about how mm. difficult it is mm. to operate at that that level on a on a mental basis. Mm. Um, Could you get burnout? But, don't you eventually? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm. I mean, and you look back at. Uh, the the eighties and the nineties, you you could definitely see. Looking back now, there were cricketers that were suffering from that, but just the the conversation was never had. It was just not. It's a man's game type of thing, and that's like mm, so. That's the mm. toxic mass masculinity. I think that you're referring to. Mm. I think just as a as a final um, sort of couple of questions, Andy. I, we we both know that cricket, rightly or wrongly, is seen as a a boring game in inverted commas by a lot of the mainstream sort of um, public. Predominantly played, coached, and commentated on by privately educated white middle class boys. You know, I don't think the uh, the stereotypical image of whenever we have a Lord's test helps within all the people in pink trousers and, yeah. and purple jackets. <laughs> in many respects, this stereotype unfortunately still holds because cricket isn't really played in a lot of state schools. It wasn't played in mine. Um, yeah. I was fortunate to come from a, a, a sort of middle class background. And my parents took me down to my local Greek club and that's how I started. But the players that I played with were, came from a host of different backgrounds. So it educated me on being from, you know, being with people from different um, walks of life. But why is it important that we, we try and as, as much as possible to get more people from, from working class backgrounds to play the game and, and sort of break this, this stereotype? Mm, I, think, I think it's, it's the way that you've described it is, is, is an absolute anathema to me. That's never been my experience of cricket. It's mm. played in the in the Yorkshire leagues. It's always been a massively working class game. A massive. That's really interesting. Game. Really interesting. It, 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 you know the the jazz hats that that you that we just probably talk about. You know, you get used to get touring time teams from the south that had come up here and you know, they come to the, the the Garden of Eden of you know Yorkshire cricket. They'd be expecting a genteel game of of sort of village green cricket and they mm. come up against some some of these hard faced league cricketers that I played with and they just couldn't believe it. <laughs> some, of it some of what was was said and it's, it's a friendly it's a friendly chaps just don't do that. <laughs> yeah I'm gonna knock your block off lad. Just, <laughs> they meant it because that's that's that was the expression. So um I think the it's it, the more people that play what for me is the best game of the world, the better. Mm. And I, I don't think the um, the the professional game helps itself by its, um, you know, you talk all the lads that that come out of the England team or the professional game, they'll go off and be cricket master at Uppingham School or whatever. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> yeah, I exactly. They, it's suddenly <laughs> you know positions created for them at these these public schools, and I think they could do a better job of getting out into the. Um, uh, into the, the community. I think the ECB needs to, I'm, I'm not very fond of the ECB, you know, the, the World Cup, massive mm. opportunity to promote mm. the best game in the world to lots and lots of, they've got this magnificent trophy that should have gone on a tour around every single cricket club in this country mm. and it didn't. And it's stuck somewhere and we haven't seen it and that is an absolute disgrace. Because mm. that could that could have inspired some young kid 
to go, oh my God, I can do that. But instead they took it back to the school, mm. the clubs that, they, that the England players played. And I get that. Why not have that connection? But there were mm. thousands of other clubs that could have done with that connection as well. And mm. they, they could have organised that pretty easily and missed an mm. opportunity there. So I think for me, it's the... That, that both sides of the game, if you if you want, need to need to talk to each other mm. and have an open conversation about how we keep the best game in the world going. It's such a great point you raised there because that I mean that's happened with every other World Cup. Well, every other there's not, there's not been many that we've won, but it's happened yeah. with the World Cups we've won previously in other sports. It's always had yeah. that sort of roadshow effect, you know. I think that the the build up to the World Cup when they were sort of there was a lot of articles written about you know how many players in the team were from um, state school backgrounds. I think it was yep. not maybe 50-50, but pretty close to that. So it was very much the uh, same sort of similar background that the Rugby World winning World Cup team had when they had almost half players from state school backgrounds, which is again mm. not the norm in you know rugby teams or professional rugby teams. Um, so I mean, I get I think, you know that's a really good po- really good point you made. Um, just as a just as a final question as well, Andy, if there's anyone listening to the to the pod right now who who's a parent who might want to who might, might want to be thinking of taking their son to or daughter to a game or start getting them involved in cricket, what what message would you say? Um, do it because it, it'll um, it'll only benefit you and your children. Uh, but go with the um, with the expectation of participation, not necessarily success. I mean, I'm I'm involved at. Um, George, my son, plays junior football. He's, he's played a little bit of junior cricket, but the number of, of parents that I see on the touchline who are living their lives through their children, the success mm. of a, an under-10 and an under-11 kid on a football pitch, it's, it's, it's really sad to see. So I think mm. I'd just go and help your child to love the game, and then what happens, happens. Um, mm. But there's so many kids that I see, particularly football, uh, although you still get the, the the parent wandering around the boundary at cricket matches, sort of grimacing <laughs> at their kid when he, he doesn't you know, score fifty and take five wickets in three overs type of thing, that still happens. So we just got to take the pressure off. And there's, there's kids in my my, my son's um, my peer group who are really good footballers, but are packing it in because the because they feel under pressure. They shouldn't be under pressure. Mm. Eleven year old. Mm. Mm. I'm reading a really interesting book about that at the um I'm reading an interesting book about that at the moment called uh it's by Michael Calvin and oh what's it called it's called something like you know um no no hunger in paradise it's called yeah. really good book yes. recommend it um mm. I just had I just had one final question actually come to me Andy what was the I mean if you can avoid swearing that would be great but don't worry if you don't what was the best and worst sledge you ever heard on a cricket field and you gave um, see, I I didn't sledge much, but uh, because I, I was I would talk if you were batting, I wouldn't talk to you. I'd talk about you, and I was a wicketkeeper for, for ten. Well, I, I did everything really. I batted, bowled, uh, and I kept wicket for ten years. So as a wicketkeeper, I was the the leader of the band. I was the drummer that that set the beat, and I would talk about you. To silly mid off, silly mid on to, to to wherever. Oh, that's almost worse than saying it to you, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> oh, yeah. And then and then I'd I'd um I'd, I'd analyze your technique and I'd, I'd the best thing I did. I used to love it when you you start a game with um that consecutive maiden over. So first over was a maiden. I'd, after three balls, I'd be going three, 
four, five, and then I just <laughs> every single dot ball. 15 dot balls, lads. Come on, got to play a shot soon. Got to play a shot soon and stuff like that. So it wasn't, it wasn't, I don't think I ever said anything particularly funny, but I was desperate to get inside your head as a, as a, a member of the opposition. Um, yes, sledging wise, nothing funny that, that I can ever, because I was quite, um, I got told off loads of times by my batting partners because we'd, we'd get on top in a game and we'd start batting really well. And then somebody would say something to me and I'd bite. And then it's like all of the opposition. You're like a marlin. Yeah. <laughs> and I, mean, I can remember one of my great mates, John Carrington. We did this in a game, and we were, we battled it back into a position of supremacy. And then one of the opposition said something to me that I bit at, and I bit back. And then every member of the opposition's back up again after 20 overs of battling really hard, and we got them subdued. One piece of gobbin off from me lifted them back up again. So actually, I was I wasn't very very good at it um, so I, I, I can't give you anything there Freddie unfortunately we talked about Andy the director and Andy the uh, part-time cricket player now I just want to go a little bit deeper Andy and talk about your own journey so so first of all talk me through your early life your teenage years and whether looking back you think you had any early mental health experiences uh, who's the Andy we meet here mm, um, uh, born and bred in Murfield um Lived there all my life until being forty. Uh, when I moved down down here to Barnsley, where I live now, with with Karen, my missus, and family, um, went to school in Dewsbury and then to to Huddersfield. Uh, I was born three miles away from the old Leeds Road ground, so hence that was there was only one football team I could support. And the going to school in Huddersfield uh, <laughs> made the connection even. Even bigger, although I don't, I don't remember there being that many town fans actually at, at school. Um, it was around about the sort of seventies, eighties when Liverpool were quite popular, and mm. I think Man United mm. were, were struggling a bit. Um, uh, went went to sixth form, did A levels, and then went to work for Barclays Bank purely because I just wanted to to earn some money. I didn't have any idea about a, a career or a um, or anything like that. I, I never really thought that far, and that's, I guess that's one of the things that I want to help George with. Really, is giving him the idea that he can, he can do anything that he likes, but not just to do anything. Which I guess that's what that's what I did really. Um, I didn't go to uni, and, and, and don't regret that really. But um, mm. I now help graduates in, in uh, some of the training that I do, and I think they've got a different perspective on life that, that maybe would have been would have been interesting for me to have. Um, mm. Worked for Barclays for God, what? How many years? Eighteen years, I think. Uh, and then moved to the Halifax, where I think I spent about six years in its various guises. Um, I worked for Halifax, Lloyd's, H. Boss, all in that time. Although they were the same thing. Um, I changed <laughs> companies really. Um, and then I got I got the opportunity to take voluntary redundancy from there in. 2012 i went to work for for qa training worked there for about four and a half years on their, their full-time staff and i guess got the opportunity really to go to to become an associate of theirs i was getting a bit frustrated that i wasn't getting any career progression i was getting different job titles but essentially i was doing the same thing and i wanted to do either do the same thing with more flexibility or go and do something else and i'm becoming mm. freelance enabled me to to do that so um 
Dammit Karen in 2005. Uh, we met online. As, as that was fairly revolutionary back in those days. I was going to say that was that must have been very new. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no Tinder back then or Hinge, was no, there? T- no Tinder. I don't know what Tinder is. <laughs> um, yeah, we've been together f- for 15 years now. Um, George was born in 2009, and and Karen already had Charlotte from her. Um, a, a previous marriage, so um, yeah, I've got my own little, um, own little perfect family down here in mm. uh, Sunny Barnsley now. Mm. And why do you think it's it's so important from an, an emotional perspective and a mental health point of view for men to have a strong partner, whether that be a woman or a man, um, at their side instead of behind them, so we can amend that old mm. saying slightly. Yeah, that 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 that, that phrase of a you know every, behind every great man there is a strong woman. That's utter rubbish. Um, mm. it's, it's got to be a partnership. We, um, th- she, she does whatever she can to facilitate what I need to do to be able to go, to go out and, and work. And we've sort of re- reversed roles at the minute. Cause I'm, I'm on furlough at the minute, as you can imagine, there's not much face to face training going on. <laughs> so, um, I, I'm the one that, um, I'm fussing around making coffee for her and making her a lunch and making her a tea and making sure the place is tidy and what have you. So we, we sort of swapped roles over, over lockdown, but um, throughout the, the 15 years we've, we've been together, we've always been able to sort of dovetail really well. We, we, we complement mm. each other. We're very different people, but we, we complement each other. Mm. One thing you were really keen to talk about um, off air, Andy, is the journey you made to Everest Base Camp in 2008, which is over 12 years ago now. Bloody hell. Yes, if you could, yeah. just just talk to me about how this journey came about, why you wanted to do it, and how it went. It, uh, a, a great uh, friend of mine, a guy called Jamie Thompson, he was a Leeds fan, but um, I'll, I'll forgive him for that, for the for the experience of going <laughs> to Base Camp with him. Um, yeah, his, his mum sadly died suddenly of, a, of heart disease or heart attack. Um, in either 2006 or 2007 mm-hmm. and he wanted to do a, a trek um to raise money in, in her memory and he, he I'd, I'd said oh, i'd love to do something like that full of bravado and and beer probably when we were out <laughs> on one night and never thought he'd come back and go i'm going do you fancy doing it and i said yeah and as ever with whatever i decide to do karen goes yeah go go and do it completely supportive so um we had to raise money to go it was like a sponsored thing so i did some sponsored stuff to get get the money raised um and yeah it was just ended up being just one of the, the most magnificent memorable things i've ever done in my life to, it's one of those that people people think it's um it's difficult to explain because it if you're going to get altitude sickness it'll get you i could go back tomorrow despite having done the trek already um and I could get altitude sickness and not be able to do it. So I was very lucky. I looked after myself really well, uh, but just the sights and and sounds and smells and everything was just um, just unbelievable. The names flying into um, Lucknow, which is the world's most dangerous airport, and if you ever see it, you'll understand why. It's on the side of a cliff, and the runway is about 200 meters long. And you fly on these turboprop planes, and you land. And if you don't stop, you fly straight into the side of the aircraft, but the airport. Oh building. my god, that's anxiety-inducing. <laughs> but then, but then, but oh, it gets worse because when you set off, you've only got a two hundred meter like runway. Oh wait, so if, if you're struggling, you're going off the cliff. <laughs> you go, well, that's literally what you do. You go off the cliff, and then you drop, but you're already ten thousand feet up. 
So there's like a valley there that you fly off into. So you drop and then you come back 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 up again, man. <laughs> oh my That's, god, um, this is this is giving me anxiety just thinking about it. <laughs> it, it was terrifying, but it was it was it was a completely magnificent experience. But the, mm. I guess one of the reasons that it was memorable for me was the um, I remember Jamie took a, a flower that he'd got that he he'd taken from the table the night. Um, I think he, him and he, he, he was with his mum. Uh, they, they were away on holiday and they picked up the flowers from the table to take away because they had a lovely evening. And then his mum had a heart attack and, and passed away. And he, oh, he took God. one of the flowers to um, to Everest Base Camp with him to, to put up there. So it's it's still up there is this, this flower. Uh, it's like a tribute and he was desperate to get the, the flower up there. Um, but I can remember sitting while he was doing that and looking at the top of Everest and, and just, just wishing to be a dad. So I'm not, I'm not religious, mm. but apparently, um, Buddha sits on top of Everest. So, um, I think that's what Buddhists believe anyway. Mm. And I said, sort of pray to Buddha, you know, I'd, I'd love to be a dad. Um, I, you can fill in the gaps of what happened when I came back, but <laughs> some, sort of nine, ten months later, after I returned from every space base camp, th- there's a little fella in my life who's been there ever mm. since. So yeah, mm. um, when he's when he's eighteen, I'll, I think I'll be about sixty when he's eighteen. Um, it's our intention to, to go back and do the do the trek together because mm. there's just, just something spiritual about that place mm. for me. Just before we move on, um, Andy, I just wanted to sort of dive in a bit deeper on that bit because, you know, was that was that a massive moment in your life when that happened? And, and looking back, yeah. you know, what what do you think this adventure taught you about yourself as well? <laughs> Jamie, I'll tell you tell you that it it taught him many things about me, principally that I, I snore like an absolute uh, rhinoceros. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what did it teach me about me? Um, that I could take on that challenge, that I could um, manage myself well, because it was quite a, it's quite a difficult situation. There were, I think, there were about forty people doing it, so you mm. can imagine that it was um, it was quite um, a, a busy trip, um, and I was able dealing with lots of people from all over the place. But it was it was a really good experience. But, but just to see Kathmandu as well was just an amazing place but everybody on the way up was so happy or every village that we went through we'd got um we got teddy bears with us because one of the people on the um the trek had decided it was going to be the world's highest teddy bears picnic so we were all asked to bring teddies and the kids as we went through the villages were fascinated by our teddies and they tried to pinch them to be fair but um we managed to to get them all the way up, I took um, one of Charlotte's teddies with me, Winnie the Pooh. So Winnie the Pooh went to um, to Everest Base Camp uh, and mm. had a tea party there. But yeah, I think it was about that. I could take the, the and the perspective that it gave me as well, because everybody that we we met in Nepal was just massively happy, but yet had absolutely nothing. And mm. you know, they just that what if they can be happy with that? Why the hell can't I be happy with what? what I've got and everything that I've got to to be thankful for. Mm, that's a really interesting point you said there about the juxtaposition between their economic status and their general happiness as well. Mm. Um, you said you said something really interesting to me before we did this pod, Andy. You said, I got to where I am by taking opportunities and taking challenges. What did you mean by that? And is that mantra something you've always had within you? 
Not, not really. I think I've, I've always, I've mostly shied away from um, challenges, gone, gone for sort of the easy life until I think until I turned turned forty in two thousand and five. Um, but I think ever, ever since, I think life's been brilliant since since I turned forty. Absolutely, not that it wasn't good before, but it was. It's been brilliant ever since because I've made that decision to, um, if the opportunity is there, I'll say yes to it. And then often work out the way to do it. That in the past that I've probably gone, oh, let me ever think about that. Um, so taking on challenges, um, that becoming self-employed was a challenge. I had a, a great friend of mine now, um, a guy called Terry, who uh, mentored me through it. Um, and there was a couple of opportunities that presented themselves. A guy called Simon Hartley, who's a sports psychologist, offered me the chance to go and do some work with him, um, which didn't subsequently end up, you know, producing any any employment as such but again it opened my eyes that there's, there's lots of different ways of of doing stuff so it was um and, and i guess it's one of the things that i'm i'm super proud of my, my son for is that he, he he's sort of three or four years behind football playing terms of, of a lot of his mates they, they started playing mm. at six he wasn't interested until he was about um, nine or ten so he's a couple of years development behind them, but the team that he plays for now is probably one of the best under eleven teams in in well, definitely in the in Barnsley, maybe in South Yorkshire. And he wanted to go and play for them because of the challenge that it, it produces. He said, Look, I want to go I want to play with my mates, but yeah, but also the challenge of playing and getting in that team, I'll have to get better. I'll have to try um to, to develop. He said I want to have a go. And um, I guess that's that's the thing that's I've been trying to get him to to do is that you know, the world opens up for you if you take challenges on it. Mm. Um, so yeah, try always tried to do that. Just a final question here, Andy. Uh, and before we go on to the next topic, you mentioned there about what George said uh, about wanting to take on that challenge. How proud of you were you of him? And also, were you were you surprised to to see him have that sort of mantra at such an early age? Um, surprise, no, um, because both both me and Karen have always tried to not not push him. Push him is the wrong way, but but um, hold him accountable and, and set high standards for him. So I'm not surprised that he did it. But yeah, I'm massively proud. Uh, my son teaches me so much every day about mm. um, just <laughs> just being a decent human being. Um, mm. he's, he just smiles all the time, sings to himself. He's just really happy. Um, and he forgives me every time I mess up. I can be a right grumpy so-and-so from time to time. <laughs> a bit, I think we all can. <laughs> yeah, but, but whatever I do, he never holds a grudge. You know whether that'll carry on in future life when he becomes a teenager, I don't know. But he, he's teaching me a lot about... Um, about how to be a better person and my life is so much improved by having him in it it's just um brilliant so yeah massively proud of him another big part of your life andy and it's something which we've already chatted about to to quite some length already is fatherhood now firstly how old were you when you became a dad and what effect did it have on you Right, so I'd be, uh, it was 2009, so early 2009, so I'd be 43 and a bit. Um, so, and I'd never expected to, to, be, to become a dad. 
um, up to the point of, you know, if it hasn't happened by now, it's probably not mm. destined to happen. So mm. I'd almost written it off. Um, the effect has been seismic. It's just completely mm. changed um, my life, um, mine and Karen's life, mine and Karen and, uh, and Charlotte's lives, I guess. Um, yeah, it's been... I look at people that don't have children and think, I think every parent thinks their child is the best thing in the world ever. Mm. Um, and I'm, and I'm no different, but what, um, what it, it, the, the, the way it's changed my outlook on life, um, is just absolutely 100%, um, mm. change, massive change. Mm. And just talk me through the moment when, uh, your partner told you you were going to be a dad, you know, where was it? How did you react? What was that moment like? And then, and then sort of the first few weeks after it happened, you know, what were you like as a person? Were you telling everyone about it? Were you, were you keeping it quite close to your chest? I can imagine you were sort of be telling people once the, the safe period had been, was, yeah. was there essentially. We had the safe period. I think it was, was 12 weeks. Um, I, I can remember where I was. Um, I was facilitating a, a coaching workshop for Lloyds Bank, um, and it was at their uh, what's it called, Lovell Park building. And it was Karen rang me up at, at lunchtime. She was in the <laughs> she was in the toilets at um, Asda in Sheffield, where she'd done a, <laughs> a pregnancy test, and she rang me up and said, "I'm pregnant," and I I just couldn't believe it. And then I had to go back in and carry on facilitating a workshop about coaching. <laughs> what was that you, like? It was it was just <laughs> surreal, because I'm like, hang on a minute, you don't know what I know. I, I know this thing that you don't know, and I can't tell you. It was, it was in fact, one of one of my mates, Mrs. was on, was on and I think, I, I want to tell you, because I, I sort of know you, uh, but couldn't. So, yeah, kept it, kept it quiet for 12 weeks, and then went to tell... Um, tell my mum and dad and Karen's mum and dad we sort of did a tour around and you could see when we were arriving at my sister's houses going they were looking at us going well they thought I think they thought that we were going to tell them we were going to go get married and mm. and, and we're not married as, as yet uh, but when we told them that um the, the, the disbelief on their faces as well was was quite marked um <laughs> so yeah because it was just what it just it was never going to happen and it, and it did. So I think, you know, that, that spiritual thing of, of Everest, of, of Sagamartha, which is what Everest is called in, I think it's Nepalese, it's called Sagamartha, sort of granted mm. my, my wish. So yeah, it's mm. seismic change. And, um, and just talking about the, uh, the, the day of the birth now, you know, mm. what was that like? And the moment after George was born, did you, did you, did you feel like your life had completely changed and you had changed with it? No, I felt nothing. I felt absolutely right. Nothing. Okay, because I, I was just absolutely—I couldn't believe what I'd seen. I couldn't believe mm. what had happened. So you so were I numb with remember. emotion, basically. No, absolutely numb, completely yeah. and utterly numb. Um, so there were no tears. I expected. I'd always imagined that when my son was born, and when I found out it was going to be a lad. Oh my god, I was proper mm. happy. Like yeah. future Huddersfield Town fan, he's going to play football for town. Huddersfield <laughs> Town baby grow already. <laughs> yeah, but everything, all that type of stuff was was ordered and and, and bought, what have you. Um, and I just nothing, 
nothing at all. Mm. And I can remember, it, it was a snowy day. I can remember that. It was really bad snow and Karen's waters broke. And I can remember driving her to, <laughs> driving her to hospital. And there was kids arsing about on a, um, a, like one of those pedestrian crossings. Mm. And I was in a right state. And I can remember winding the windows down and stop messing. Well, I might have been slightly stronger than stop messing about. <laughs> and I pointed at her and I went, she's pregnant. And like, these kids just looked at me blank. And I realized afterwards that, so what? She's pregnant. What what difference does that make? Obviously, what I meant to say was she's giving birth. But I just told them that she was pregnant. So no wonder they looked at me completely nonplussed about what this ranting man had said in the car. Um, so thankfully, yeah, she, it was a, it was a fairly fairly quick birth. But I can remember being absolutely stunned, maybe awestruck, stunned, but mm. nothing. And it wasn't until mm. I came home, uh, and I that was the the, the the weirdest bit was leaving them in hospital. I didn't realise that was going to happen. I, when she was taken onto the ward with George, I was stopped. I said, no, no, you can't go in there. Well, what do you think I'm going to do? You know, that's that's my son, and you're asking me to be separated from my son. No, I've only just met him. So I ended up having mm. to, to come. I can remember sitting downstairs having a glass of red wine and going, just thinking to myself, your world has just changed forever. Mm. Um, and yeah, ever since then, just been, mm. just been great. And, uh, and talking about you as a father now, what kind of father are you for your son, George? Are you someone who's, who's teaching him that as, you know, as a man, it's, it's okay to show emotion and vulnerability and, and perhaps help yeah. redefine that outdated yeah. uh, ideal I've of got, masculinity got, perhaps previous generations tried to instill into us? Yeah, I, I think I've, I've made myself a pledge that he will know he's loved every single day. So mm. I'll tell him that I love him every single day. Every single day he's had on this planet so far, I've told him that I love him. Now, whether he remembers that or not, when he was a little kid, but we have a, you know, us, us, we have a, we have a, we have a weird sort of handshake as he goes to school. So we do like a, we, one of those um, hand slapping handshake things and a little dab at the end of it. So we've got our, our own handshake. <laughs> yeah, but every, like Deli Allen, Harry Kane. Yeah, yeah. It's something like that. It's not probably not maybe not quite as complicated as what they do, but it's, it's a similar <laughs> sort of thing. So yeah, I've, I made that that vow to myself and to him. Um, what sort, sort of dad am I? I'm, I'm probably a bit bit strict. Karen brings the balance in that she she they just sit and laugh at each other those two, and I'm sitting there getting grumpy. And then they both look at me and just go. Then obviously I can't carry on being grumpy there when I'm having Mickey taken out of me. Um, I like to think um, I, I probably treat him a little bit older than he actually is, and maybe that's got mm. good sides and and bad sides to it. But yeah, mm. he's, um, I, often if I if I if I go off on one, one of the things I've always done is gone back and I've always apologised, um, and he's always he's always forgiven me. So I've never bottled it up. Mm. I've never gone. Rah, rah, rah. I think one of the things about working in the area that I do is knowing that. Um, knowing a little bit about how the brain works, I know what's going on. You know, my chimp is the one that's that's going rah, and then the rational human being comes in and goes, "Hang on a minute, that wasn't the best thing he could have done." How can you go mm. and sort it out? So I'll mm. um, I'll use that. Um, so I think I try to show him that it's okay to make mistakes as long as you uh, you're open and honest about it. I think yeah, I'm probably a bit too strict on him, but we try mm. and have fun. I think one of the thing, king, key things for me is is my age. I'm I'm 55 in September. Uh, and I've got to try and keep fit because I've, I think I've been granted uh, a sort of limited amount of time with him 
you know, I'm, mm. he's going to be relatively young, I guess. Even if I like, even if I live to um, maybe ninety, he'll still mm. be not as old as I am now, and I'm still lucky enough to still have my mum and dad. Um, mm. So he's going to have to deal with probably me and Karen passing away before I've had to deal with it. Um, so I think it's sometimes it's uh, recognizing that I've I've just been granted this really special lucky mm. thing, and. Mm. Every now and again, we'll, we'll get things wrong, but most of the time we get things right um, and we share a lot of things together. So it's uh, it's pretty cool. Mm. Does that does that what you just said there? Does it does it drive you to be a better dad, or does it drive you to sort of maintain yourself and maintain your mental health as well as your physical health? Yeah, all of the, all of the above. Um, I'm mm. definitely um, fitter than, than I was. I tell him that I'm fitter than him because he keeps bottling out on doing Joe Wicks on a morning, but and I, I always do every single activity. In fact, I've got a little song for him, but I'm, I'm fatter but fitter than you. I'm fitter than you. <laughs> fatter but fitter. I'm fitter than you. And he said, oh, shut up, Dad. So like yeah, so I think, um, yeah, it's, it's given me um, a, a new purpose, a, a different purpose. It's given me... Um, reasons to keep because it's it can be a bit of a slog sometimes you know you, you're getting up at mm. ridiculous slog in the morning when we're going back into training places driving everywhere staying overnight trying your best to uh to do the best that you can so yeah it it's it, the, the benefits he's given me have been uh incredible really Mm. And just going back to sport, Andy, how have you sort of imparted your love of, of cricket on your son, George? And is it something that you use as a bonding tool or, or for your relationships or, or perhaps impart some fatherly wisdom on him through sport? And uh, obviously, uh, obviously, speaking of other sports, Huddersfield Town is obviously something we both love as well. How do you use town games as quality time you spend with him? Because the older we get, and I found this especially, the more we realise that, of course, it's about seeing your team do well, but it's more about the person you spend enjoying it with. Yeah, the spend of the time with yeah cricket wise he's not that fussed for it uh, and I always said that I, I I would never force him to, to play any sport I guess that's why I was desperate for him to play football but he was never that bothered so we never pushed him I've never pushed him to play cricket he's 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 done all stars and he's he's played the odd game for the under 11s at Silkston but I don't think he's that bothered I brought him a um, a cricket kit for Christmas it's still untouched in the garage. So, um, <laughs> it's gathering dust. The problem is, he's, it, yeah, but if 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 he if he could only see that actually when he picks a bat up and when he picks a ball up, he's actually could be a really good cricketer. But I've made that decision that I, I was made to go swimming when I was younger. I hated mm. it, and I made mm. a um, a promise to myself that ever I did have kids, I would never force them to 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 do any sport because um, I I was. I did it for my, for my granddad, my granddad Sutcliffe, and I hated every second of it. Mm. But So I've made that decision even, even at that sort of young age, 10, 11. Um, I was a pretty good swimmer, but I just didn't like it. So I've, I've made that choice. Um, mm. In terms, so we've, I've tried to get him into it. I've tried to, I've taken him, and every now and again, he shows a little bit of interest. Like we watched the World Cup final and the, the Headingley Test and stuff like that. I think he can see how happy it makes me. But in terms of him being bothered, I'll see if anything happens, but I don't think he's forced. But mind you, mm. if I look back on it, he's already played more cricket at his age than I had at his age, if that makes sense. Mm. I didn't so there's hope. That I was 13. <laughs> there's time. There's time, yeah. Um, I'll just keep buying him stuff. Um, and hopefully, <laughs> sort of get the hint. <laughs> um, town, it's been a bit more of a, 
a connection because he's football daft. He's absolutely on his WhatsApp thing on his phone. He's he describes himself as a football addict, and he, and he is. He absolutely loves it. The, the, the early years, he was never that bothered for, for watching, really. He's a bit like me in that. He'd far rather play than, than watch. I can remember just having to give him my me, me, me phone during um, town games. Uh, but ever, ever since the 16-17 the season, obviously, when we went and got promoted, the um, <laughs> when when Schindler scored his penalty, uh, and we have a rule in our in our. Um, in our house that every penalty now has to go into Schindler's corner. And I say to him, <laughs> Schindler's corner, he knows where it's going and still, well, he can't stop it. Cause anyway, that's me busting. He's, he, um, he sounds a bit like one of those kids who was annoyingly gifted at, at sports and they didn't realize it. <laughs> he could be. Yeah. I think he could be. God knows where he's got it from, but he certainly hasn't got it from me. He must've got it from Karen. Um, but yeah, the, the football's been a bit, I've had to drag him on a, a few occasions because he'd sometimes he'd rather he'd not bother. Um, but yeah, the, the, when we've when we've had the, the memorable occasion, you know, I think like the Man Man United game when we beat them two one, uh, just just incredible memories at Wembley. Um, we worked together for the um, for the uh, the Hillsborough the one because um, I was working in Barra, so I can remember mm. watching the penalties in the hotel room in Barra. Um, and I absolutely roared the place down when um, Danny Ward saves, Danny Ward saves. <laughs> Iconic, um, mate. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so yeah, um, we didn't have that to share, but we've had we've had lots of t- I, like I took him to the uh, to the Emirates in the first season. I surprised him, took I picked him up from school and took him down to down to London on the train that night, um, and then we stayed down there in a flat in somewhere in Highbury. And then came back up early in the morning. So I've I've done little things like that to cement his love. And I think he's he's definitely died in the wall. Town fan talks about we. And when he got that that um, that video from Steve Mounier, well, his his face wasn't. Uh, but my face was a bigger picture. But his face was a uh, an absolute uh, delight to see when he realised that one mm. of his heroes had sent him a message. You're also a stepdad to your partner's daughter, Charlotte. Now, just tell me about your relationship with her, how you took on that role of stepdad, as, as however you frame it, it's it's not ever an easy job, or is it? Um, do you know what? It's, it's been relatively easy, because Charlotte's so easygoing um, that ever since we came in, I've never taken that role of stepdad. She referred to me as her stepdad um, a couple of weeks ago, and it was a bit strange, because she'd never done it before. Because we sort of had that conversation. Because often people assume that I'm her dad, and particularly when she was about six when we first met, uh, me and Karen first met, and people would just assume. So we just sort of look at each other and, and sort of roll eyes and raise eyebrows and go, "Yeah, another one's got it wrong." But I said to her that you know I'm, I'm not there to be a, a stepdad. I'm not there to be a replacement dad. Because she's got a fantastic dad who lives mm. in uh, lives in Dewsbury with his new wife, and she's got two. Um, two sisters there. Um, so why would she need another dad? She doesn't. She's got she's got an Andy. So she's got me doing what what an Andy does, which is I guess you could argue it's the the role of a stepdad. But it's that just we just we've never really used that term. And that for me, mm. I've always wanted it to be on Charlotte's terms. So I never wanted to go in and go right. I'm your stepdad, and this is how it's going to be. Because when we first met, she was only six, bless her. So she didn't really know what was expected so i've just let it 
organically um, evolve over time. And I just do my best for her and support her in any way that I can. She's she's uh, going to be really delighted with whatever she gets from from uni and then we'll just carry on doing that so the the mm. role of stepdad is i don't think i am although you could argue technically i am i, I, I don't think i am if that makes sense mm. yeah no it does i completely get what you mean just as a final question andy if there are any new dads or, or even stepdads listening to this podcast or are struggling with the ups and downs that come with fatherhood what advice would you give them before the big day happens and when it's actually happened and they have to get on with it? Um, so for, for those expectant fathers, um, initially, in the when it went before the child's born, do what you're told and do it quickly. I find that kept me um, sane. Uh, and remember that it's not about you anymore. Um but the stepdad thing was interesting because sometimes there can be conflict in relationships where the two parents have, have split up. And I think they've got to recognize that um, it's not about the parents. It's about the, the child and doing what's best for them. And the parents have got to park their own feelings and, um, and ways of doing things. So I, as, as a dad, try your best. As a stepdad, try your best. Talk to your, to your kids. Um, find out how they're feeling, find out what's going on for them. And then it's a bit like, I guess, a bit like leadership in, you know, the stuff that I talk about when I'm, when I work, um, just do the best that you can listen to, give your kids a good listening to rather than a good talking to, although I'm sometimes not as good as I could be at that. Um, <laughs> and then just do the, do the, do the best that you can, you can, and it'll all work out in the end. And I think be, be good enough rather than be perfect. Often you, you want to be the perfect parent and none of us are perfect mm. and we'll all make mm. mistakes. So, you know, there's a, I'm a big fan of a guy called Paul McGee who wrote the, the Sumo book uh, and lots of other books. Um, but he talks about uh, a concept in, in Sumo called hippo time. So hippo time is where you wallow in the mistake that you've made and you have a bit of, whoa, whoa, that rubbish, whoa, and you get a bit um, leery about it. It's okay to have hippo time and I, and I have a, one of the ways that I manage myself is I allow myself some hippo time when I make a mistake, but then hippo time has got to finish, and then you can come out and do something practical about it. But but forgiving yourself is is something that you've got to be good at as well. Mm. That's a really um, really important point to end it on, Andy, and and that's something that I'm I'm definitely working on. And uh, I you know I struggle with rumination anxiety and and that that feeling of going over your past mistakes over yeah. and over and over again. And I'm certainly uh, trying to learn more about detaching from that and and, and detachment and you know apologising once and then moving on. Um, is that is that something that you're trying to teach to um, to George as well about that sort of emotional side of yeah. how to deal with the everyday struggles? Yeah, I think um, often people want to want to control their emotions. Uh, for me, you don't control your emotions, but you control your responses. So I think you know, feeling the way that you are going to feel like I've, if you've made a mistake, you have to go through that process of feeling it to then be able to do something about it. Um, so I'm trying to teach you that it's, it's okay to be upset. It's okay to be fed up. It's okay to be um, angry, regretful, whatever it is. Um, as long as you then don't allow it to go on for too long and you can do something practical about it. So we, we try and talk about how he's feeling and he's, he's usually okay. He's, he's George, but that's sometimes where he can listen to me and help me through it. 
seeing as we've just spoken to Andy about being a dad with him and his mum's permission, I thought what better way to make this pod a little bit more special than talk to his son, George, about their relationship and how they're supporting each other during the lockdown. George, thanks so much for taking the time out of your schoolwork on a, on a Sunday to talk to me, mate. How are you doing at the moment? Uh, very good. I'm occupying myself. Excellent. That's good to hear. Um, obviously things are a bit difficult for all of us at the moment George what, what things have you missed doing you know maybe seeing your friends for example uh, and what things are you doing to help you get through it and, and help your mental health so a bit of football in the garden maybe a bit of PS4 or Xbox One or a bit of reading perhaps uh, yeah um, I'm missing playing football because I'm seeing all my football mates there and mm. if the school year is finished I'm going to a high school that none of my friends the boys are going to um, oh no! So that if we don't meet up in the holidays, then that could have been the last time I saw them. So and, and, and ha- yeah, how does that make you feel, mate? Is that are you a bit sad about that, or are you sort of like accepting of you know the situation? Or yeah, I'm a bit sad about it, but most of my friends that go, I go to school with play for my football team, so I'll see them when I go to football after all this. Excellent. That's a great attitude to have. So you might not be going to the same school, but you'll still be seeing them at football at least once a week, won't you? Yeah. Excellent. Um, Now, your dad said to me that your school that you're at at the moment um, has helped a few of your classmates get sort of uh, trained in mental health first aid. Is that right? Is that something you'd like to do maybe in the future? Um, Maybe. Um, and so what do what do um what does the school do to help you all sort of with your mental health then and in and especially with the with the first aiders like what do they teach you about it um well it, at lunchtime if we like we need any help with it um we can go into we have this mental health room um, next door to our mm-hmm. classroom so at lunchtime if we need to go we can go and then they'll talk us through it and yeah. This podcast, George, is all about our mental health and helping people. If you had to describe what mental health means to you, what would you say? Um, well, really just staying positive and not really thinking negative, trying to keep mm. happy most of the time mm. and just stay that's a, Yeah, that's a great... That's a great definition, I think, George. Um, I know you and your dad have a have a really special relationship. How does your how does your dad help you when you you might be feeling a bit sad or you might need someone to talk to? Well, he just talks me through what I'm upset about and then tries to take out the positive things in it and take away mm. the negative. Mm, excellent, and that's great to hear. And we we always say on this podcast that um, we always try to take a positive out of a negative. I've got to ask you just finally, George, about about that Steve Mounier video. Now, for the listeners, George is a big Huddersfield Town fan, like his dad, and his favourite town player is Steve Mounier. And you managed to speak to him about your school project about Benin. Just just tell me how that came about and and how excited you were when you got the chance to talk to him. So we looked um, at what work we had to do for the two weeks. And there was one where it's history of Benin, and and then I realised that Steve Munier was from Benin. So my dad suggested that we could send a video to um, Huddersfield Town and see if we could get a reply. So we sent the video asking him the questions, and then a day later we got a reply, and I was super excited. <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine. And I watched the video, and uh, Steve seems just a really genuinely nice guy. How did you? How did that make you feel after you showed your teachers and classmates? Because you went viral on Huddersfield Twitter for a few days, thanks to your dad. <laughs> I don't know. I I don't think I got much replies on um, my classics group chat. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
because none of them really like know anything. Well, they know about football. They just don't really know stuff about Huddersfield. Mm. And, and are, um, are a lot of your mates Huddersfield fans, or is it just you? Just me. There's one other person oh, in the God. school who I think is in year four. So you're like me then, because I grew up in London and I was the only Huddersfield Town fan as well and no one knew that I supported Town. Well, they knew it. They knew I did, but they had no idea about it. So I got. So my my dad sometimes cheekily used to take me out of school for some of the big playoff games. So I know how you feel about no one, uh, no one knowing about Huddersfield, but I guess it makes you quite unique and special, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, and, just, and just as I've got a, one more final uh, question, George, about this... Um, how? What was the grade that you got in that project, and uh, and how did that make you feel when you were uh, knowing that your dad had done that for you? Uh, well, we don't get grades in our school, but because um, oh, we don't have to hand the work in when it's uh, like now, mm. obviously because of lockdown. Um, mm. But I feel like if I got a grade, it would have been a very good one. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great way to end it. Cheers, George. Thanks so much. Our final topic of conversation, Andy, and it's one I have with all my special guests, which is a general natter about mental health. So firstly, I know the circumstances are a bit bit difficult right now, but how would you say your mental health is at the moment, mate? Um, improving. Um, I think I, I went to see Simon Sinek speak, you know, the author of uh, stuff like uh, Start With Why and Leaders Eat Last and stuff like that. I'm a big fan mm. of his. I went to see him speak in New York Um with my mate Terry, it was a bit of an excuse to go to New York. We got in and got out before it got shut down with with Corona, thankfully. But he talked about the concept of being ahead and behind. Um, so you never, you never, you know, um, in a, in a in a perfect situation, you're either ahead of the game or you're behind the game. And um, certainly for the last um, six weeks or so, particularly round about you know lockdown time and, and sort of bit me employment just dropping off a cliff and then finding out that they, I'm one of the 5% that fall through the gaps in terms of the, the government help. Um, that that was a bit of a struggle. But I just got to the concept of of getting, I'm just behind. Today, I'm behind. Tomorrow, I might be less behind. Um, so I think it's been, it's been an improving situation. Um, and I think just reflecting... Uh, on an evening about how things have gone uh, has also been a, a really useful tool. So I think I'm definitely not ahead, um, but I'm much less behind than I was maybe five or six weeks ago. Mm. And what tools and methods do you use in your own life, Andy, to improve your mental health or help you feel better? You know, which ones have you found that have worked and, and maybe which ones that haven't? I've, I've got... Um, the there's a, an app that's just flashing up on my mobile phone at the minute called Reflectly, uh, and it asks you. It's just a, an app on your phone to. It's like a, a, a diary type of journaling app. So I found that that really useful and really helpful. Um, I think being able to just I know when I'm when I'm starting to I'm pretty good at. Spe- spotting when i'm when i'm starting to struggle not necessarily mentally but um, if i'm starting to get angry or frustrated i'm pretty self-aware so i'm pretty good at being able to go right i need to change state now so wherever i am if i'm feeling in that particular way i will then go okay so i now need to go for a walk or i need to get out of the house or i need to go and 
listen to some music or I need a bit of, um, I need a QM, a quiet moment. I went on a, a cricket tour, God. Uh, God, my 20 odd years ago to, to the West Indies with a, a school and one of the teachers there kept disappearing off and we'd find him just sat in a um, another part of the hotel just on his own having a, having a coffee. I went, well, what are you doing? I'm having a QM. What's a QM? Quiet moment. And that was, oh my God. Now, I sometimes just go, I'm having a QM and I'll just take myself away. I have 10 minutes of just thinking of whatever, but just breaking state from where I've been before and then I can come back. But knowing that I need that um, has been really useful. I love that concept, mate. I think it's something that I'm going to probably start using in uh, using in my own, my own life, to be honest. Um, how do you support friends in your own social group who, who may have mental health issues themselves or maybe going through a, a poor period of mental health? I think it's just offering to to be there, really. There's a couple, uh, one of my mates in particular has had, um, uh, not recently, but a fair few years ago, um, lost his wife. And he he was um, not, not a, never visibly in a in a bad state, but anybody who's been through what he'd been through, and there's, there's something else that he's been through that I'm not going to talk about that has also massively affected him. Um, mm. Just knowing that, just saying, look, if you, if you need help, I'm here. And it, every now and again, you might get a little bit of conversation, but I think what he does, he starts that conversation off and then he'll go off and finish it with with somebody else, which is which is fine. I think it's just just checking in from time to time and making sure that your mates are all right. Um, and it's mm. just, you know, Jane, how are you, how are you doing? You're all right. I've, I've not got a huge circle of friends. A lot of my friends come from my sporting endeavours, so there's all the guys at Silkstone, all the lads I play with at Murfield and at Cawthorne. Uh, you know, they're, they're still friends that i've got um but my my social circle of, of real good mates is about five or six people who are who i know particularly well and know even even over zoom calls you can see when one of your mates is struggling but just offering to to be there for them if they want because i know they would do the same for me if um mm. if i needed it mm. Toxic masculinity is something that we try and break down a lot on this pod, Andy. Now, firstly, what what do you think it means to you? Because there's no defined definition. And how do you think we tackle it? I think those who display toxic masculinity usually are the the least self-aware and often the most frightened of people. So I think the way that I would would want to do it is, is to be recognize that they're doing what they think is is what works for them but also hold them account for for what they do and what they say which is probably what i've not not done in the past it's been dead easy to walk past it and go right i'm not going to have that word with that person over there who said that thing because i don't want that conflict i I don't want to get involved in it but actually um trying to to ask questions about why they said what they said and why they did what they did and get to a, a place of understanding it's probably a better way to break it down than for me to 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 attack it face on because what you're likely to get mm-hmm. is chimp to chimp conversation in that situation. So you you attack somebody for the way they've behaved, they will just come back and attack you again to try and go it in with a an inquiring mind and not ne- sometimes people associate kindness with weakness and that's not the case. But being kind about saying I'm trying to get to understand that why you made the choice to behave the way that you did and let you know by doing this that that's it's not okay is a for me would be a more effective way of doing it than going oh you're wrong you need to sort yourself out mm. because often you're just displaying 
and probably what I've done in the past is you're displaying the same tr- behavioural traits that they were displaying. So that just reinforces mm. that what they've done is the right thing because you're doing it as well. So mm. why wouldn't they carry on doing it? Mm. Or they become very ultra defensive or they say you're overreacting or they say mm. you're being, you know, a, yeah. a snowflake or something like that and, and using, you know, yeah. inherently bad language. But because you haven't got to a stage of understanding with them, they think mm. you're being, uh, I don't know, a PC or something ridiculous like yeah. that instead of actually challenge them on on bad behavior. So I agree with you. I think it's engagement rather than, you know, straight up conflict is the way forward, isn't it? Um, I'm, I'm a big, big fan of a guy yeah, called David Emerald who wrote, has written, I probably realized that I read a lot of books for my, um, for my work because I believe that my, my job is to pass on knowledge to other people as well as help them to create it for themselves. And he's written two books, The Power of Ted and a book called Three Vital Questions. Now, The Power of Ted's a, a parable about Ted stands for the empowerment dynamic. And it's about how to get out of this, the, what he calls the dreaded drama triangle, DDT, where people view themselves as either victims who have persecutors and rescuers. And the way to move out of that is to start to uh, start to move into um a place where we start to operate, where, we, where we're offering from, uh, it's, a bit, it's, a, it's a bit religious, so I'm a little bit uh, not so sure about it, but talking about being a creator, a coach, and a challenger, rather than a, a rescuer and a persecutor. So what, I'm tra- what I would try to do in that situation is apply the knowledge that I've got from those two books, which is about asking different questions. Uh, because if you start to, to persecute somebody, they will stay more as a victim. If you start to rescue somebody, they, they become addicted to the help you're giving them, so they stay as a victim. So it, ultimately, it's a toxic place to be. So trying to ask better questions, because both challenger and coach are about questions, you know, about what can you learn from this, or what would you do differently next time, rather than giving advice and telling people what to do. So I think I'd try and do it from, a, um, I guess, a questioning perspective, and ultimately mm. recognizing that the only thing that I can control is what I do. However, everybody else chooses to respond is up to them. But that doesn't excuse me from not calling people out or having a conversation about maybe toxic behaviors they've displayed. Mm. I talk a lot on this pod as well, Andy, about this idea of positive masculinity. What are some of the qualities you think a man should exude to be labeled or be associated with positive masculinity, do you think? That's a really interesting question. Um, I think that they'd have to be um, self-aware. I think they'd need to be observant and they'd need to be able to spot the impact their behaviour is having on others. And then they'd be able, need to be able to do something about it. So I think it's all about emotional intelligence, really, is, is a positive masculinity. Uh, oh, this, you know, the, mm. the, the cliched stuff, I'd say, about being strong and direction and... Mm, Meh, I'm not not a fan of that. But I think you've got to work out what's the best thing that I can do for myself and therefore the other people in this in this situation. And for me, it's all about being emotionally intelligent. Is what I'm doing working? And if it is, I'll carry on. If it's not, what's happening to the people around me, and what do I need to do to change it? So for me, it would be about about that. and all the, the previous stuff about, you know, the the Ant Middletons of this world. That, I mean, I love um, SAS, that, that, that film, that, that thing that he's, I can't remember what it's called now. Um, SAS Who Dares Wins. That's it. I mean, yeah, I absolutely he does. love yeah, watching yeah. it from a, from a perspective of understanding how people are 
um, respond in those situations. But I think some of the stuff they do on there is utter madness. What sort of organisation hurls abuse at their people? How does that help? Mm. It's, it's mm. madness. So, so for me, that, and that for me is about other people um, making themselves feel safe by shouting at others. So if I'm shouting at you, that means I'm strong. No, I don't. It just means you're shouting. Um, so working out what you're doing and why you're doing it, the impact it's having and changing it could be what I've looked into. Mm. I really loved those qualities that you gave, especially around emotional intelligence. And I think that's really, I think that's a, a key thing to be honest. Mm. Just as a final one, and I've I've absolutely loved this pod, and I've I've learned quite a lot as well to, as well from it. To be fair, <laughs> what more do you think? What more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health? And also, why do you think men have struggled to open up about their emotions and show vulnerability until fairly recently? I think we've got to listen more. And again, it's the observant bit. We've got to to, to get our heads up. And, and one of the things that help people with is getting the head up and looking around going, what's going on around me now? What am I seeing over there? What What's what's happening over there? Um, so it's about being um, more observant and, and listening to um, what's going on around and, and also being available for people to listen to. And I've forgotten the second question, second part of the question. Uh, it was, why do you think we as men have struggled to open up about our emotions and show vulnerability until quite recently? Because I think that's not been the, the model of masculinity that we've been presented with. I think a lot of the the heroes that you will see um, in in art and sport and culture and and military uh, they've got they're, they're all of a certain ilk they're all strong and silent stiff up lip and I think that's the because um, that's an easy thing to portray but actually um, it's it's not always the most effective thing so I think we've been given that impression that that's the way to be a man the other hunter gatherer type of thing and it's sometimes that's the right thing to do sometimes the um it working out when you need to, to lead or when you need to listen are, are key parts of emotional intelligence um i think it's because we've been given that as the as the role model and that's been handed down because it's it's so much easier for me to go right oh, yeah just be like me son be tough and strong and mm. um and, and actually people talk about what i do as being soft skills and that phrase winds me up because it's not about softness they're sometimes the most difficult thing to do that you've ever had to do to be open, honest, to give feedback to somebody who might not want to hear it. Those are tough things, but they're essential human skills that often shouting at people is the very much the easiest of, so we stick with it what's easy. Well, I think that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a massive thank you to Andy and George for being my special guests on this episode's pod and for checking in with me. I hope they really enjoyed it. As always, thank you to all the vendors who've tuned in. Remember, if you like what you've heard, please give this a share on all the usual social media channels. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. Or if you're feeling very generous, write us a review on iTunes. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, it's always okay to vent. <laughs>